I don't really know how much people actually love the art, right? Or if it's more just about because it's an art piece that um, has a name attached to it, that has some sort of sign value attached to it. Yo, what's going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith. And I am Troy Polidori. And Austin Hayden has got a YouTube channel, everybody. Oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, it's the uh, kind of relaunch of... I've, I've, I've messed around in this space, obviously, uh, on uh, not just with the work with Wisecrack, but on my own channel. But now I'm doing it for real. So I have launched the channel. The first video is three reasons why Jordan Peterson is not a fascist, but one reason why he is still dangerous. And uh, I kind of go into some of those issues, and it's kind of a clickbaity title, um, but not really, because I actually do kind of want to break it down into kind of some simple ways of why I think he's not a fascist, but at the same time, I don't think that he's somebody that uh, we should tell our children to be reading a whole bunch of <laughs> in the world. So go ahead and check that out. It's just Austin Hayden, you know, my name. I, I've, been, I've been debating about how to go by what my name is. I think I got to stop saying Austin Hayden Smith because I'm going full Austin Hayden here. Like, the website is Austin Hayden, my acting name, all my IMDb credits for since I was a kid have been Austin Hayden, so I gotta just stop confusing people. The problem is, is in academia, I've always gone by my full name, so mm. I know. So my yeah. book is published under Austin Hayden Smith, so if people want to find me and they search for Austin Hayden and they see, like, this actory dude with a, a YouTube channel, are they gonna be like, oh, that can't be the same guy, but it is the same guy, so I, my fault for confusing people, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, you're a fan of ontological pluralism, right? So two different persons, two different names. Seems appropriate to me. I, I'm i into it. I just don't know if everybody else is into it. Um, <laughs> for ease's sake, maybe I need to kind of become a singular singular name here. So we'll go with Austin Hayden. That'll be the name that I, that I stick with. But yeah, check out the channel. Subscribe, like, share, all that good madness. Um, so this week what we're going to be talking about are NFTs. It's this craze that people have been talking about. There are mass amounts of wealth that are flooding into this NFT market. And you're like, what the fuck is an NFT? Well, stick around and I will tell you NFT stands for non-fungible token. And it has taken the art world by storm as well as a couple of other mediums as well. But the one that's getting all the buzz right now are artworks because they've been sold for millions and millions of dollars in this NFT space. And all the people from like Mark Cuban to Logan Paul to Gary Vee are talking. They're kind of just uh, effusively praising the future of the NFT market. So we'll talk about what NFTs are and then we'll do a little bit of a critical dive into how we can understand NFTs from a couple of different angles. So that's coming up in the main segment. Yeah, yeah. We do want to mention, if you want to go to patreon.com slash Dawn, you can support us in several different tangible ways. You get access to all the goodies that we share with the patrons, like the pretty new, but not entirely brand spanking new Discord channel we have for our patrons, as well as occasional bonus episodes and, most importantly, the ability to choose our next patron-sponsored episode. We have a thread up right now asking for recommendations that's still up but not going to be up for very much longer so if you're a patron or want to become a patron then please go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn and get on there recommending what you want us to talk about next 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I was hesitant for a little bit to do the Discord thing because I just didn't know how much time it would take. And I didn't know if we would get like, I don't know, like lots of like dick jokes and things like that. And I'm fine with with dick jokes every now and then. We launch them ourselves on this podcast in the middle of serious (laughs) conversations sometimes. But I've actually been really like really pleasantly surprised at what the Discord... I don't know. I feel like we're building a little community kind of, you know? And uh, people are sharing their artwork and and people are kind of talking about sports and all kinds of things. But at the same time, philosophy and the episodes and I don't know. uh, It's actually been really wonderful. So... I'm I'm seeing the light in the value of Discord communities. I think I think YouTube comment sections have turned me off uh, yeah, from yeah. you know, but Discord isn't like that at all, right? And obviously, it's it, but like I was just expecting that maybe there would be people that would be haters. But then I'm like, well, wait a second, you wouldn't be a patron of our podcast if you were gonna just fucking shit on us. I don't think <laughs> like you might hate listen to. I us, mean, I mean, go ahead hate, if you want to. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, so that's been kind of pleasantly surprising. So I'm in, I'm enjoying the whole Discord thing. And you're like, yeah, dude, welcome to the club. Three years too late, but yes. Yeah, who, who would have with this stuff sometimes? Who would have thought that uh, that some social restrictions can actually enhance freedom? Who would have thought mm. that? Interesting. Yes, we don't platform uh, asshole Nazis on our Discord. So just so you know. Um, so yeah, uh, patreon.com. We also have a, um, a merch page where you can get tote bags and mugs. I'm drinking out of my Owls at Dawn mug right now. I'm not going to lie, dude. I fucking love my Owls at Dawn mug, dude. It's like, <laughs> I'm so happy with it. Shouts to Alan Mitchell, the artist who designed the cartoon. Um, it's really cool. So go check out the one where it's the two owls talking with each other. And my owl goes, you know, kind of like Heidegger. And then a couple of cards later, Troy's owl goes, fuck Heidegger. I mean, I'm assuming that's what... My owl and Troy's owl. Doesn't yeah, we did, we, we determined it, that. We asked Ellen. We determined it. It's <laughs> yeah, set that's in stone. Right. That's right. It, yeah, it's scripture. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so go ahead and check all that good stuff out. Okay, so let's start off the episode. We got to start it off the way we start off every mother effing episode. It's with the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that is pissing us off. Troy, it is your turn to rant. Let her rip. All right, I've done this before, but this is kind of an annually scheduled shitty minute because it needs to be set every year. And I am the person most prepared to say it and most willing to put my neck on the line to say it. College basketball is not better than professional basketball. Every oh, year, I hate this take. <laughs> every year in the latter half of March, people get all whipped up about college basketball because they have this wonderful tournament, which is wonderful and it's great and it's structured in such a way as to enhance all of the drama and that's wonderful. But as basketball, the quality of the basketball itself is not good. I still watch it. I haven't really watched any yet. I watched a little bit of um, Oklahoma State to see Cade Cunningham the other day and he got knocked out. So we'll see how much I watch until like the final four. But um I, I do love the drama and it's and it's great. And doing I didn't do a bracket this year for the first time in I don't know how many years since I was a kid probably, which is a bummer. Just didn't really have time. But I love that whole thing. I love how it brings people together. Um, I even don't mind the sort of affiliation with, with colleges. Some, you know, quote unquote higher minded academics or intellectuals kind of frown upon that sort of fraternity or fraternizing with a specific college. But I don't find any problem with it at all as long as it's not 
it's really good hearted and no one ever really actually looks down on anybody else in some denigrating or disrespectful way. So I think it's totally harmless and probably even good in a lot of respects. But the quality of the basketball is not good. Guys running around, kicking the ball everywhere, taking bad shots, bricking threes, making bad passes, flinging the ball around the perimeter seven times until the clock um, runs out because they don't know how to fight a zone. That's not good quality basketball. It's certainly not better than professional basketball. Now, when people say that they like college basketball better because the players try hard, they're not you know rich, overpaid athletes who are just nonchalantly going through the game, they don't know what they're talking about. College basketball players are more frantic than professional basketball players because they don't know what they're doing for the most part, at least relative to professional basketball players, right? Who have honed their skills over thousands of hours of practice to the point where their muscle fibers twitch unconsciously at a moment's notice and can do various uh, kinds of moves and passes and shots and dribbles and whatever else they need to do uh, in a way that college basketball players just haven't done yet because they're amateurs, right? So, College basketball is great. I love it, especially this time in the latter half of March, early part of April, when you get to watch the drama that's enhanced by the tournament. Uh, and it's a nice little break, too, from the NBA because it's a bit of a slog going through the whole season, uh, especially now that, you know, my team, the Lakers, uh, are, um, have fallen to shit since their two best players are both hurt. Um, but that does not mean that college basketball is better than professional basketball. Hold your horses. It's not better. Gonzaga could not beat the Timberwolves. So don't bring that take in here about how the best college basketball team can beat the worst NBA team. The worst NBA team is made up of superstar college players who have gotten better since they left college, right? The Wolves are full of um, tier one college, former tier one college basketball players, right? Only maybe three or four, maybe five of the Gonzaga players are even going to end up in the NBA, let alone um, be really above average players or stars. So that couldn't happen. Austin, I sent you a video of Brian Scalabrini, ex-Celtic, ex-however many seven, ten teams he was on. That dude never got off the bench. He probably played in the NBA for about five to seven years, entirely being a towel-waving bench warmer the, the whole time. And he was very entertaining as a bench warmer, but didn't really play. Probably if you're going to think, who's the worst NBA player ever who actually stayed in the NBA for a significant amount of time, you might think Brian Scalabrini. And this video I sent you was of him destroying, I think, either a college basketball player or a high school basketball player. I can't remember how old he was. Just destroying him, owning him, beat him 11 to 0 without even really trying that hard. That's how good the worst player in the NBA is. Okay, take over. Yeah, and he's been out of the league for a long time, too. So it's not like he's in his even playing shape, whereas yeah. this ball player that he's playing against is in his peak at this point of his life, peak physical form. So well, I'm, I'm yeah, not sure Brian 11... Scalabrini has a peak physical form, but yes, I, I, I take that. <laughs> but he beat him 11 nothing, and uh, yeah, it wasn't even close. And yeah, here's the thing. I, I What do you think the fetishization is with high school basketball, besides just the love of amateurism and like somehow the purity, this this... This, I think that maybe even is kind of like some bullshit illusion that, oh, it's about the purity and the joy of the sport and, you know, school spirit, whereas when money gets in, then it corrupts. Like, what do you what do you think the fetishization is? Is it simply that? Or is there also something that's like, but it's about the fundamentals, man, and, and they, they, they do the fundamentals, which is kind of essentially saying there's a racial element here as well. That, yeah, that, that's this. totally false. Yeah, I mean, yeah. 
Yeah, watch Go actually ahead. watch watch dribble, pass, and shoot an NBA an average NBA player versus an average college player. It's not even close. Who has better fundamentals? Like that's just a totally um, that's just totally illusory. But I think you're right that you know there's kind of an innocuous and then a less innocuous interpretation to why okay. people like college basketball more than pro basketball. The innocuous one is just the only time you watch college basketball is during this tournament. And it's fun because of the external strict structure of the tournament, right? Where it's one and done. And, you know, these guys, for a lot of them, it's the last time playing basketball if they're a senior. And usually the teams that are not led by one and done are going to be mostly upperclassmen, right? So they're fighting for their lives. You can kind of see on their faces they're anticipating the pressure of never playing basketball in an organized fashion again. Um, and that's all, you know, that's all external kind of ad hoc stuff. It's, a, it's not basketball related, really. It's just the structure of the tournament, which is great. And that's totally fine if you really enjoy that. I really enjoy that that part of it, right? The the less innocuous part of it, and then also like if you have an affiliation with the college, and that's obviously something that, you know, might enhance your yeah. enjoyment of it. The less innocuous version is, I think, what you're getting at, which is some combination of maybe it's racialized, right? That's possible. Um, but also just like, a sense that there's purity to the game because the players aren't making money. It's not their career. They're dedicating themselves to a craft. And since there's not money involved, they're doing it for its own sake. That's sort of the assumption, right? So they're, they're intrinsically valuing the thing, right? And that's just incredibly problematic from all sorts of ways. I don't want to go too, too down uh, deep into that notion, but obviously you can intrinsically value something even if you make money off of it. That's certainly possible and true, right? Mm. And it totally covers over the injustice of the fact that um, executives with NCAA make millions of dollars uh, made by yeah. the work done by the players and the players see nothing from that and in fact get punished if they ever see any rewards from that. So that's just, you know, a whole um, a whole spectrum of injustice that's involved there and this whole it's pure because they don't make money thing is a cover really for that stuff. And if you're if you think that mm. purity is gained by, by being sort of uh, exploited then I think that's a very problematic notion of whatever could be good about purity purity in the realm of athletics or art or anything like that is going to just be you do what you do because you want to do it or you find intrinsic value in it or you want to achieve the highest level you can for its own sake right and none of that necessarily has to be uh, lessened by being able to make a living or you know in some cases making much more than a living by doing so Hmm. It's interesting. Um, kind of, I, I think maybe part of the reason too why we love the tournament so much is that there's just so much drama in it, right? The emotion, the, the players are crying, the excitement, the joy, the fans are really invested in it. And so it makes great, great dramatic television. It's reality mm-hmm. TV, you know, and uh, it's got all the storylines, you know, the the kid who got the scholarship, who was kind of dragged out of, you know, a, a crappy family life and who's, and these are the stories that we tell ourselves, I think, while we're watching, who's getting a college education at the same time as they're playing sports. And, and it's a very sort of American story, I think, that appeals so much to these myths and these narratives that we are so attached to. And I think maybe that's part of the reason as well. There does seem to be a lot of mythology around this. I wonder if there's anything been written about, like, the mythology of college basketball, Right, I, I'm sure there's been think pieces that have touched on this, but it'd be a really interesting, like, full-length book to really just really delve into, kind of like mythologies in the same way that you get 
uh, sort of expositional pieces on like the Western as a genre of American myth. It'd be really interesting to do something similar with college basketball, you know? Mm. Yeah. And you know, I think that, get on that, get on that. (laughs) Yeah. If I had, you know, documentarian skills, maybe that'd be a thing. Adam Curtis, let's let's collaborate, you know? Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I do want to say that there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that celebrating some of those things, right? It's the fact that they get used by NCAA. And the reason why the NCAA is going to promote these kinds of stories and promote this mythology uh, throughout the tournament by telling these human interest stories about the players and stuff is mostly because they know that people are on the attack. They're on the defensive against mm. the idea, which is becoming more popular, that they're exploiting the players and making you know mm. millions and billions of dollars off of their work. And they need to repl- they need to sort of put something else out there that will convince people that it's worthwhile for these players to be exploited. They're getting something else out of it. And so they tell these stories about them um, to sort of play out that fact and cover over the injustice of it all. But that doesn't mean that the human interest stuff is in and of itself bad. We just have to recognize that even when it's uplifting and good and we appreciate it and we love it, at the same time, we have to see how that's being used by the people who are in power in this situation. Both of those things can be true at the same time. Mm. I mean, I do worry a little bit about the emotional manipulation that's used, but maybe it's part of the reason I use it is because it's part of the culture machine that is kind of directing flows of how to think and how to respond, and it kind of creates certain patterns that are then exacerbated by, you know, American Idol that does this human interest thing, but in a really sort of saccharine way, right? Every single person on there uh, comes out of tragedy, and they sell us on that because they know that mm-hmm. they can appeal to our kind of uh, our, our human desires. And so that's one of the things that I don't love. There is a sort of libidinal economy critique here beyond just the kind of more like direct, let's say, financial um, aspect or monetized aspect that you're talking about that I do worry about. Yeah, that's interesting too. But, you know, I do think that you know who has a cool story, a cool buildings Roman associated with basketball? is Luka Doncic, mm. like 13 years old, and he gets sent off from um, Slovenia to Spain to play basketball and join a basketball academy. I'm like, mm. that's pretty badass. I would want to see a documentary about 13-year-old Luka Doncic playing against 30-year-old men in practice and mm-hmm. trying to like work his way up to being eventually at 19, the MVP of the Euro league and winning the championship. That's super cool. And, and all of that is going to also involve like him getting paid as well as going to school and doing all that. So that the, you know, the teams sort of build an academy around their team for the under 18 players. So like there's nothing inherent about those kinds of things. Uh, as far as college basketball is concerned, you don't have to like, Uh, have this process where a player goes to school, makes a bunch of money for the school, and then never gets to see any rewards from that other than the sort of, you know, fungible, like, uh, college experience or whatever, plus the the degree if they finish out, right? So Mm. I think it's just important to know that that's all contingent stuff. It doesn't have to be that way. Mm. Yeah. I just got an idea. I think I'm going to make a video on my YouTube channel about this whole myth of uh, the American myth in NCAA basketball thing just in time for the end of the tournament here. That'd yeah. be a good time to I do it, I'm yeah, d- right when the Final Four starts. I think, I think I'm going to fucking do that. <laughs>
When are we in the round of eight already? Elite eight? Sweet 16. It is the Sweet 16 still. Okay. I yeah, only so, know that because I got a notification that said Stephen A. Smith is ecstatic about Oral Roberts being in the Sweet 16. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cool. Oral Roberts is in the Sweet 16. I literally didn't even know the tournament was going on. And then I was like, oh, yeah, it's March. Duh. I really hope that that title cuts off after Oral. So it just says Stephen A. Smith is excited about Oral dot dot dot. <laughs> uh, we told you that there's dick jokes and things like that on this podcast. <laughs> what did you think you were getting? All right, let's wrap this up and let's get into the main segment. Let's talk about NFTs, bro. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, we are going to be talking about NFTs this week. What are NFTs? Troy, you actually proposed this topic. Well, twice. You hit me up on Twitter once. Uh, when I think I sent a tweet about it, and, and then maybe you responded, and you were like, I'm sure you have thoughts about NFTs. And then when we were like, what should we talk about this, you, this week? We were like, how about NFTs? And you can tell me about them. So why, Troy? Why did you want to talk about NFTs? Well, that wasn't the exact quote, right? I didn't say, how about NFTs? I said, why don't you tell me about NFTs? <laughs> so let's be, let's be exact here. I'm I'm yeah. sitting here and I'm the students, right? I'm the Padawan and you're the teacher, mm. you're the Jedi. I want to hear about what NFTs are and then also um, some critical notes about them because my knowledge of NFTs at this point is basically just through Twitter jokes and seeing one of the Vigilvoss mm. twins uh, make an ass out of himself on Twitter. Mm. Although, should I okay. mention that um, my favorite example of NFTs at this point the philosophy NFT that I sent you earlier. Should we yeah, bring that up go now? Ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll put this in the show notes and maybe put it on Twitter. But uh, there's a guy named J.E.H. Smith who has a mintable um, account where he's selling philosophy NFTs. And he's specifically selling philosophical ideas or concepts as NFTs. So currently for sale is the stable locus of personal identity. Which I'm guessing if you're a Lockean, it means diachronic consciousness. So it'd be interesting to buy diachronic consciousness or the concept of diachronic consciousness uh, as an NFT. Uh, the idea of a physical object, which is a companion piece to the previous NFT for a physical object. So I, I want a package deal of both a physical object and the idea of a physical object. <laughs> and you know, the only one he's sold so far, as far as I can tell, which mm -hmm. is the best one. For $181, he sold the type token distinction. So he sold the type token distinction as a non-fungible token, which is pretty great. <laughs> uh, which makes me okay. want to ask, like, what are the type and token distinctions that are existing in NFTs? Because that seems very confused in the very idea of an NFT. So I am now at the moment of Aporia. And so I leave it to you, Austin, to explain NFTs to me. I mean, okay, so first we'll just do a quick, like, what are NFTs, and then we'll get into some critical stuff later. We'll talk about, uh, like, three, maybe four different ways that I think we can interpret what's going on here. Essentially, an NFT is what's called a non-fungible token. That is, it is a non-exchangeable uh, entity. So money, for example, is a fungible token. I can take five $1 bills... And Troy, you can give me a $5 bill, right? Or I can take uh, $1,100 bills and I can get uh, some type of uh, 
credit, let's say, I mean, I guess there is a $1,000 bill, but I can get some type of unit that will allow me to exchange within the type, right? Within the money, right? Then there are what are called non-fungible items. Let's say an art piece. The Mona Lisa, for example, is a non-fungible piece of art because I can't take the Mona Lisa, the singular Mona Lisa, actually painted, the one that is hanging in the art gallery, I can't take that and exchange it for a million posters of Mona Lisa, right? Um, or reproductions of Mona Lisa. There is something about that art piece that is singular, and it has something to do with its value, it also has something to do with its uniqueness, and it has something to do that it has a a type of imprint, a singularized, unique imprint that is uh, derives from the fact that it was a piece of art created by da Vinci, right? So that's what singularizes it. So these non-fungible tokens are basically that, but in the form of uh, digitized blockchain um, technology. So you're getting... In the world of art, for example, obviously you could sell concepts uh, as somebody uh, or as Troy was just talking about how somebody's doing. But the one that's I think the easiest example to kind of understand what's going on and the one that's kind of caught fire at the moment is uh, art pieces. There's a pretty famous artist who goes by the name of Beeple who's made millions and millions of dollars selling his NFTs. And they are essentially digital art pieces that are stamped with blockchain technology blockchain technology that creates a, um, a what's the word I'm looking for, a record of all the transactions, of who made the transaction, when they made the transaction, etc., etc., that supposedly prevents any possibility of counterfeit, right? So old artists, they had to deal with issue, issues of forgery, and there are a lot of great, like, famous forgers, right, um, that have existed, that have sold art pieces under other people's names. They've sold as a Rembrandt or, or something else, right? But it wasn't actually a Rembrandt. Uh, the claim here with using blockchain technologies is that a digitized artistic NFT does not run into that same problem because every single record of transaction is, uh, is monitored and is, and is stored, right? So does that make sense? Is that, that's the first thing, let's say. Yeah, so what's new about that, um, is that the blockchain te technology allows that record to be kept in the same way it is with cryptocurrencies, right? So you have this record yes. of all the transactions, so you know its history. It can't be um, forged in that way. Kept and public, which again, one of yeah, the anybody whole can access claims, that, yeah. Yes, and which is so important because one of the whole claims to the technology that actually is popularizing cryptocurrency, it's not simply about the exchange. Like the the people who are like, speculating on it they don't really give a shit really but the people who really care about the technology of cryptocurrencies and also of nfts what they're really investing in is the future of blockchain and that's which the is issue. really interesting i would think yes very interesting as a matter of fact there are um, some scholars that uh, i think he's retired now but um uh so dick bryan and his partner brian rafferty they are working uh, they're marxists they're um Marxists of a different kind, let's say, but they're political economists and financial theorists who really care about finance and about uh, the digital economy, and they they critique the kind of typical Marxist line about finance being um, 
being a fictitious capital, right? And they think that there's something really important to understand about derivatives and various things like that. One of their new projects is actually exploring how the left and how social movements and how future kind of socialist and progressive causes can um, rely on or use blockchain technology. So if you're interested in that, keep an eye out for that. Dick Bryan and Mike Rafferty. I think I said Brian Rafferty, but it's Dick Bryan and Mike Rafferty. Um, and their work is really interesting. So you can check them out. They, they co-author a lot of stuff together. Um, I think their book, the big one that I like, is I think it's called Capitalism with Derivatives is what it's called. But it's something with derivatives. I think it's Capitalism with Derivatives. Um, and uh, then they wrote a new one recently about like the housing market and, and kind of like protest and, and like not paying um, not paying your debts and things like that. That was really interesting as well. So, But their work is, is interesting on this as well. And that's the technology that people are, are really excited about. And that's what undergirds, if you will, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the value, I think around the speculation. At least that's when you talk to the people like Gary Vee and when you talk to Mark Cuban, these these multi-million dollar and billion billion billionaire investors, that's what they're excited about, you know? Yeah, and I'll add, you know, I, I don't know a whole lot about blockchain technology and that kind of stuff, but um, I talked last week about the Ministry for the Future, the Kim Stanley Robinson book that I just finished, mm. and blockchain plays a pretty big role in the events that happen in the plot of that book in that, um, there's a sort of new currency that's minted called the carbon coin that allows people to uh, get the currency to receive it if they can prove that they've uh, sequestered some carbon. And it's, it uses blockchain technology, and that's enforced not in this sort of libertarian way that I'm sure Mark Cuban and others um, want, or that cryptocurrencies are oftentimes cast as being this kind of a currency that can be used without a sovereign backer or whatever. But then you right. could actually marry blockchain with sovereign backing of um, a, a money, a money type, a currency. And then that enables you to track money a lot easier um, so that it's not easy to sort of hide it on the Cayman Islands or anywhere like that. It has this whole record in the blockchain. I don't know what the details yeah. are about that or how feasible something like that is, but that does seem pretty interesting. Well, of course, the great irony here is that the libertarian claim exchanges what we might call an explicit sovereign for what I think we could call an implicit sovereign, which is still there are relations of debt exchange. There is still a community set of norms and standards. There is still a metaphysical set of biases that are driving, um, that are creating the parameters and the conditions that impel even the libertarian notion of cryptocurrency forward. So that's the this is maybe my sort of like Zizekian reading where it's like you can't get away from the fucking the your master you know like it's always going to be there whether it's explicit mm. or implicit and for Zizek it's like at least the explicit one is good because you know who to fight against the implicit one is the insidious one because you don't realize mm. you're being controlled or, or or compelled by it and I think that's something that's important to consider hmm. yeah, that sounds like what's exactly what's going on with the more libertarian uh, paradise version of how the cryptocurrencies would work Yes, yes. So, okay. So that's the first part of kind of what an NFT is. So basically you get a digital art piece, for example. Let's say it is um, Mona Lisa. Like, well, let's let's not make it so, uh, so derivative. Let's make it something more original. Let's say it's uh, some sort of alien-like figure that is mixed with some sort of anime figure. Um, and it can either be a still image or it can be a moving image. So let's say that it's a moving image at this point, some sort of like 15-second loop or maybe a GIF or something a along GIF. those lines. <laughs> What's up? 
It should be a GIF. Come on. Yeah. Okay. So it's a GIF. Yeah, it's a GIF. So it's a little three-second GIF. Um, and it's eating an ice cream cone, and a bird is pooping on its head, or something like that. And so, um, you can put a stamp on this as an artist, as a digital artist, and this will be your piece of art. And you can kind of lock it, and you've got your fingerprint on it. And there are all kinds of like videos out there about how to make an NFT and stuff like that. So this is something that people are kind of working on. Wait, um, really people, quick. This, yeah, really quick. What is the, this? It's a it's a .gif file that you're stamping, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay, exactly. so it's, it, it's in the file. Yes, exactly. Because it has to be, right? Because that's the only way that you can like digitize anything. There's some sort of like encoded file that you are um, that you're creating. So that's essentially what you are um, stamping your proprietary claim on, right? Okay. The, the, the way, digital the token. Way I, the way I see people talking about it sometimes on Twitter is something like the certificate of authentication you would get when you bought a picture of yes. Wade Boggs that Wade Boggs had signed after 57 beers. And so, and it's all scribbled poorly because he's so drunk. Um, <laughs> they have this notion that, well, the, the the NFT part of it, the stamp is just the certificate of authentication you get alongside the product or something like that. Like that's the mm. analogy that explains it. Is that totally off the mark? You mean in the sense that the real value or the real entity is the certificate, not the actual art piece itself? Or in some way, it's the relation between them that makes the that makes the piece valuable. Yeah, I think it's the relation between the two, right? Um, the the weird thing is, and we can talk about this more critically. I mean, I don't really know how much people actually love the art, right? Or if it's more <laughs> just about because it's an art piece that um, has a name attached to it, that has some sort of sign value attached to it. So this is where we can start to get a little bit critical on it. But yeah, the the stamping is extremely important. And then the thing is, is that it's a guarantee that it's not a forgery. Right, it's a guarantee that it is stamped by this or that person. So that's extremely important. So you stamp your NFT uh, or you stamp your art piece, let's say, and then you kind of can convert it into. At that point, it's been converted into. As soon as it's been locked down, let's say, it's been converted into a non-exchangeable item, a non-fungible token, right? And then that's where things get crazy. So NFTs are using the Ethereum blockchain technology, which I'm not an expert in blockchain technology, but um, it's using the Ethereum uh, blockchain, I think primarily, maybe exclusively. Um, and so then what's happening then is that people are making exchanges for these art pieces in Ether, which are the kind of, let's say, the, the currency of the Ethereum blockchain. And since they're worth more than like a dollar, if you pay 300 Ether for an art piece, I think that's like hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, right? So that's how somebody like Logan Paul made like 5 million bucks in a day is he made some, uh, I don't know what the units were, but he made, you know, like a few thousand Ether by selling this collection of art pieces um, that had like his face on them or some sort of digitized artistic rendition of who he was. And so he got all these Ether coins from that and therefore... Those are worth, in terms of asset valuation, a certain amount of millions of dollars. So that's what's going on here, right? So you get someone like Beeple, who's an artist, or you get somebody like Logan Paul, who's a quote-unquote artist. Um, and what they do <laughs> is they digitize some artistic expression. Beeple's actually been a long-time digital artist. He's worked with like Nike and stuff like that. So he's been in the game for a really long time. And um, basically what he did is is he – there's a, actually a little YouTube video about him kind of describing like what caught his attention and when he got into 
these these NFTs, which is recently, right? And so basically he takes a digital art piece and rather than kind of just posting it publicly on Instagram for all to consume, um, it's the sort of thing where people can – he'll put it up online, but people can um, actually bid for and exchange the rights to the object. So it's really also about intellectual property, Right. And so mm-hmm. there are a couple things going on here. The first point is that you have scarcity. You have the uniqueness of this particular item and it, that scarcity is guaranteed. The second thing that you have is intellectual property, IP. And this is the other thing that is extremely important um, that really gets people like Gary V excited or Mark Cuban excited because what they love is uh, – the exchange of intellectual property in the 21st century. So it's really interesting, actually. Adam Kotzko made a tweet today, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was uh, something about Bill Gates. He's like, I'm still amazed that everyone thinks that Bill Gates is some sort of genius on all things, when really he's just proven to be an expert in licensing certain technologies that nobody likes and everybody hates sort of thing. (laughs) And I was like, ah, that's really interesting because it's that licensing that's so important. Essentially, he's creating scarcity, and then creating an intellectual property um, resource that then he can make gobs and gobs of money off of. And Vijay Prashad, who is a wonderful scholar, has actually talked about this this idea of scarcity and intellectual property as being one of the central hallmarks uh, that describes neoliberalism, that neoliberalism essentially runs off of the development of and the sale of intellectual property in the forms of patents and in the forms of licenses agreements. And I think now we could say in the form of things like NFTs that are using these blockchain technologies to stamp, to singularize um, some product of intellectual production. So that's the second thing that I think is important. What do you think? Okay, so I have have two questions. Um, Both novice questions, possibly very naive, but I got to ask them. Uh, first one is, um, why is anybody buying these and are they all drug dealers who are laundering their money? Um, and then secondly, secondly is, so the reason why the, the, the Wade Boggs signature with his signature on it and its certificate of authentication, authentication that comes with it, the reason why that has the value it does is because it's materially scarce, right? He just sat down for an hour and signed 50 of them and then sold them for 100 bucks or whatever, right? So it's materially scarce. But then, so it's a kind of artificial scarcity, but it's not entirely artificial because he literally doesn't have, he literally has a finite amount of time, right? In in his existence. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas it seems like obviously digital um, files are not finite in that same way. They're finite, but not in that same way, such that, even if you had your certificate of authentication, uh, the value of the thing isn't just based upon the material scarcity of it, since it can be multiplied to you know potentially infinite, um, as any you know small file can be. So it seems to me like there's a there's an issue there with trying to understand the value of the thing, and the analogy with the with the signed photo doesn't doesn't follow in terms of explaining the value of the thing. So that's a more complicated question. The original yeah. one is, are they all drug dealers? Uh, probably. Um, <laughs> so the thing is, is actually you're getting a lot of people who are speculatively investing in NFTs. And I wonder if 
people like Cuban are really excited about it or if it's the kind of anticipation of what they think it might be in the future. And so they're just trying to hype it up so that they can increase a portion of their asset portfolio, right, as they're investing in it, which is a trick, obviously, that is part and parcel of asset speculation itself. You kind of create a craze around something through a type of, we can call it, I think this is manufactured scarcity. You know, you create desire, right? You create desire through a type of libidinal investment. How do you create desire? Well, I think that Todd McGowan talks about this perfectly. Desire is uh, in relation to like his psychoanalytic critique of cap or analysis of capitalism. Um, desire is is kind of manufactured through the objet petit a, the object cause of desire. And McGowan says it's the can of the Coke can. It's the limit. It's the thing that stops you from being able to consume endless and infinite amounts of the thing that you want. If you had endless possibility for consumption of it, you wouldn't want it anymore. But precisely when you come up against the limit that says no or the empty can, that's when you kind of it, you stop and you need more of it, right? So there's that's why mini cokes sell so well. What's up? That's why mini cokes sell so well, even if they're the same price as regular coke. Absolutely. Gotta love those mini cokes. Yes, absolutely. And so I think there's something similar going on here. There's a manufacture of scarcity by creating certain limits through the manufacture of desire, right? So you also get a lot of people that are kind of doing that. I mean, I'm sure there are people that are laundering money, but I think that really what this is, is this is a new form of asset speculation which means that the actual object itself is really secondary. The value then, this ties in the second point, the value only comes from the value that the speculators or the value that the investors imbue into it, right? And this is where I think we could get critical, and I was going to save this for later, but this is why I think a sort of Marxist analysis of NFTs, purely in terms of it being fictitious capital, misses the mark here. And I think we need to supplement that by looking at more kind of post-structuralist understandings, or we can look at the work of like Michelle Fair, who I've referenced a billion times on this podcast, or like Thorsten Veblen, who isn't a post-structuralist, but was writing in the uh, 19th century, at the end of the 19th century, about conspicuous consumption. I'll talk about him a little bit more in a minute. But the reason I say that these other figures are important is because what they do is they start to help us realize that there's actually a productive mechanism here. There's actually a real sense in which value is being produced, but it's not being produced based on the um, industrial form of labor, nor on the standard quantified measures of time that we are accustomed to, but it's a different conception of time. It's a time that I think is more micro in its digitized forms. So the attention that we spend thinking about the value of a brand like Nike is something that is converted into asset um, asset valuation insofar as its stock price rises based on these global flows of desire and attention and interest and libidinal investment into this stock. If everybody stopped thinking about Nike, if everybody stopped walking into Nike stores, if everybody stopped bragging about their Nikes, if everybody stopped desiring the Nike brand, well, then the brand would devalue, which then goes back to the issue of Vijay Prashad talking about intellectual property as being integral to neoliberalism. This is what drives value production under neoliberalism. It's how you can quantify intellectual property. And the way it's quantified in the asset market is primarily through stock valuations or speculative um, speculative 
quantified valuations. And I think that's kind of important to understand here. So where does the value come from? The value comes from this sort of like lateral agreement that that thing is desirable because the brand, the stamp of this digitized entity of this token is deemed to be valuable. So somebody like Logan Paul can create a digitized currency I'm sorry, a digitized token that is going to be far more valuable than the Owls at Dawn digitized token. We could make one and we could try to sell it, but it's probably not going to get 3,000 Ether. It's probably going to get a half of a thought of an Ether, you know? <laughs> so that's the problem here. That's what you get. So sign value needs to be something that is placed integrally or symbolic value is something that needs to be placed integrally in our political economic analysis. And I think we need to really start trying to find ways for how to actually quantify or not how to quantify sign value. I think the asset markets already do that. It's understanding the logic by which asset markets quantify sign value. And that's fundamentally what my project is right now. My next project that I'm working on is trying to understand that logic. Like what is the transition from the enclosure of the commons, the manufacture of scarcity, to um, its incorporation into a kind of privatized portfolio and then the ways in which it's monetized in dollar amount or yen amount or euro amount or whatever. That is, I think, a, a really important project for how we can try to understand these things moving forward. Okay, so it seems to me like the obvious objection in terms of talking about valuation here and the logic of it is, all right, if if um, if Fender makes a new kind of Stratocaster and they make a thousand of them and then stop, yeah. the obviously there's a manufactured kind of scarcity there, right? They've decided to make a thousand because they predicted that that will uh, raise the price to a certain amount that makes the profit margin worthwhile for them or whatever. And so right. the reason why people end up bidding a whole bunch on one of those thousands because eventually you can't get one. Everyone's got it. No one wants to sell anymore or whatever. Or only a few people want to sell, so the price is too high. So that manufactured scarcity leads to um, the determination of price based upon you know supply and demand. But right. the difference with digital items is, of course, I can, even if you know someone has a thousand stamped um, digital files of a Stratocaster or whatever, I could just copy one of them and it's qualitatively identical to the thousand that have the stamps. Um, Except that it doesn't have the blockchain fingerprint of the artist. And right. That's but, why the... And that's the difference. And you cannot copy that. You can the, copy – you could even reproduce the image fucking pixel by pixel and sell the exact same thing. But if it doesn't have that um, original and initial stamp on it, then um, then it's not going to be the same valuation. So what people are paying for is that IP that is stamped by – the Logan Paul or the Beeples or whoever it is. Does that yeah, make so, sense? Yes, yeah, so I'm getting there. Um, okay. Yeah. So it seems to me like the objection people are raising when I when I see people talking about this whole phenomenon being ridiculous is the one that I that just mentioned, right? That you can have a type qualitatively identical digital yeah. file just without the stamp and that for almost anything that's being sold – that its use value is entirely exhausted by right. what what can be copied um, type identically, right? So mm -hmm. like an art, like a piece of art, or a digital music file, or whatever, right? 
Now, I think that the maybe tell me if you think this is right, that the rejoinder from someone who's optimistic about NFTs would be something like this. Look, in the real world, in the non-digital world, we ascribe lots of value that is constitutive of the history of the history of things is constitutive and part of the value of the thing, not just its current qualities. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, like with the Fender Stratocasters, the fact that Fender made them during this thousand guitar run or whatever that happened, whatever year it happened, um, that's partly constitutive of its value. And so even mm-hmm. if you did make a qualitatively identical guitar, some dude in his house, right, mm-hmm. it, it would be qualitatively identical, but it will not have the same value because the history is different. It's the same reason why we would take a, a literal Da Vinci and value it more than a forge of a Da Vinci, if, mm. even if that forge was qualitatively identical, right? The history of the thing is partly constitutive of its value. And that's certainly true. I think that's true in lots of areas, not just in art. So would the NFT partisan say something like, yeah, right now it seems kind of ridiculous because we don't have that notion that a digital file's valuation is partly constituted by its history. But we're going to get there as more and more things become digital. The history of those files will become partly constitutive of their value. And so we're anticipating that. And this technology will help bring about that type of valuation that we're anticipating. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah, it's important to understand that in most financialized discourse, a lot of people, the typical standard line is a financialized asset is valued in the present based on some sort of potential future value, right? So there's always a relation to the future. So absolutely, there is a forward-looking, future-oriented disposition that is driving this. This is one of part and parcel of the logic of speculation, right? To speculate yeah. really does imply some sort of um, relationship to a notion of the future, right? But here's the thing that's that's interesting. So somebody like Gary Vee, actually, I've heard him say that like 97% of all NFTs right now are garbage. But so what he's investing in is, again, this technology. It's, again, this investment in blockchain technology, um, but also it's an investment in kind of what he sees as a trend towards the future. So in one sense, you're right. But the other sense uh, that I think it's important to understand that there is a history that's already embedded. Because going back to the Fender Stratocaster example, the brand, even if it's qualitatively the exact same guitar, has the same sort of warm tones and everything like that and this dude that this dude in the, the garage makes, the problem is it doesn't have that stamp on it. It doesn't say Fender. It doesn't have the history of all the blues musicians and all the rock musicians and all the fucking garage bands that have tried to take part in expressing some sort of musical artistry. And so when you buy a Fender, you're buying that. When you the buy history. a Logan... Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, the history. You're buying the history yeah. of where it came from, not just what That's it right. is now. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even when the guy manufactures it in his garage, he's doing so inspired by that history. Right? Mm-hmm. He's doing so in relation to that history. But he doesn't have the Fender stamp on the guitar. Doesn't say made in America or made in Mexico if you get one of the cheaper Fenders, right? Um, yeah, I had a Mexican Strat once upon a time. I had a Mexican Strat too. <laughs> and then I bought my American Fat Strat and I was like, oh man, I got the real thing. Spent 900 <laughs> bucks on it or whatever it was. Um, and uh, But the difference here is, or, or the thing that we can say here is that. When you invest in a Beeple art piece, you are investing in Beeple the artist. 
When you invest in a Logan Paul art piece, you are investing in the history of the brand that is Logan Paul. So it's actually not devoid of a type of history. It's just a history that doesn't have maybe the same richness because of the short duration of time of digital history. But in terms of uh, intensity, in terms of like a different type of duration, like rather than thinking in terms of like minutes and hours and years, this is what I'm talking about in terms of we need to start thinking about value production in terms of an intensity of temporality rather than an extensional logic of temporality. And the intensity of the value of the history of the brand of Logan Paul is what is present that gives it its value as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I think that what you're saying is just um, continental ease for the analytic ease that I'm saying, which is that uh, history is the history of an object is probably constitutive of its value um, in various yeah. ways, and that that's that's embedded in our thinking about physical objects, especially and, and most evidently in artistic objects. Although that's the, it's the case in other things too, especially with sentimental objects, uh, such that a qualitatively identical object would not suffice to have the same value necessarily. Um, but then I'm still, I'm still, I, I can take that and I can even take a bit of the notion that right now we don't ascribe or have that same type of valuation with digital files as we do with physical objects, but maybe we will in the future as more and more things become digital and physical objects recede. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm still, there's still something about the fact that material objects, physical objects, even if there's a level of artificial scarcity um, sort of constructed by the by corporations when they're producing objects and even artists when they're only making one edition or one ver- one token of an artistic object, that's, that's still a level of finitude that the universe guarantees that it doesn't <laughs> guarantee with digital files. There's still a, a kind of finitude there, but it's like, orders of magnitude less finite, right? Um, so I wonder, is that that gap between the types of finitude we're talking about between physical objects and digital files just going to mean that we're never going to get to the point where we, we do the same type of valuation with digital files as we do with physical objects, no matter how many Mark Cubans try to tell us and hype up the fact that we ought to or maybe we because we one day will or something like that. Well, so here, here's where I'm kind of, I'm kind of confused as to uh, to what you're saying, because to me it seems, and I don't want to conflate because there are obviously differences, but let's let's go back to the Mona Lisa example. So somebody makes the Mona Lisa, a dude, right? And there's clearly, um, even if he were to come out of the grave and make a reproduction of it by hand himself. Um, it would actually probably be more valuable. Um, but Because uh, <laughs> um, then it's the fucking zombified Leonardo that just made fucking Mona Lisa 2.0. But um, uh, even if, like, say, say they discover a second one, right? They discover a second one or whatever, right? Um, and, and in, like, a vault somewhere. And, of course, it'll be a little bit different. But let, let's just say it's a damn near close reproduction copy of, of the same sort of thing or whatever. Um, that doesn't take away from the fact... What am I trying to say? That's a bad example. That's a bad example. Let's scrap that. Let's scrap that. Um, the thing I think that I'm trying to say is I think that the, the, the response from NFTers um, 
is that you actually do get that manufactured scarcity in the form of the blockchain technology. And it actually does operate in the same way, or at least in a similar way, as material scarcity. And so this is why I kind of I kind of get that argument, because you can't you can't digitally reproduce the record. So when we talked about earlier, it's the file name or it's the record that really is what you're purchasing, right? Or at least the relation between that and the actual kind of qualitative elements of the artistic piece. So it's the record. The record is is absolutely scarce, right? It's not reproducible. It is absolutely singularized. It was stamped on March 17th, 2021 by Jane Anderson. Boom. That is the singularized digital stamp that cannot be altered, cannot be reproduced, cannot be manufactured further in the same way that those thousand Stratocasters were made in January of 1999, American Fat Strats, signature line of Troy Polidori. They, they can never be reproduced again. That line is singularized in that moment. It's the same idea. Yeah, I, I get that. Um, what I'm asking is not about whether or not in reality the person is paying the price for the authentication, which is uh, scarce, or the product. What I'm asking is, do you think people will actually – because when people buy um, an object that has a certificate of authentication that's you know scarce, they don't think of themselves as buying the authentication they think of themselves as buying the object, which is being authenticated, and it comes with some authentication to sort of prove the value it already has, right? right. So that's what people think. That's why if they were to explain their valuation of the thing, that's what they would – the explanation that they would give, right? And so yeah. what I'm wondering is – and maybe that's – and from like an, you know some other like economic or whatever perspective, that's wrong. That's how people think about it, and I think that's an important thing to, to register. Yeah. Um, that logic will have trouble transferring, right? Because people will not be able to think that same way about a digital file, which is infinitely reproducible. Um, even okay. if it's I stamp, you. even I... if it's stamp is not infinitely reproducible. It's entirely scarce and finite. They won't think of themselves as buying the stamp in the same way they don't think of themselves as buying the authentication. They're yep. buying the product that's being proven. Its value is being yes. proven by the authentication. Yeah, okay, I got you. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. Sorry, I, it took me a minute to get what you were saying. This is why I think it's important for us to think about sign value and branding. Mm. So sign value has always been important, right? So mm. in, in consumer capitalism. But now sign value is central. I think sign yeah. value is integral. And that's the difference. And this that's is the why, key, yeah. yeah. So, yes, yes. So thank you. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Um, Yeah, and I think that's what's so important. This is why I think we can look, and this is maybe the last thing we'll say, why somebody like Thorsten Veblen is somebody who gives us a really good uh, insight into how we can understand what he calls conspicuous consumption. So he's writing in the Gilded Age, the end of the 19th century, where you have just massive amounts of wealth being accumulated by these multi-multi-multi-millionaires. And he's basically writing about this new, what he calls the leisure class, or if you're posh, the leisure class. Um, (laughs) And this class of people are created and identified by their abilities to consume conspicuously. What does he mean by that? Well, essentially, they're not consuming for need, but they're consuming because of their massive accumulation of wealth. And so they consume in a way that shows off their wealth. 
Mm-hmm. That is, they're, they're, they're consuming in a way that displays their opulence. So they um, throw fancy dinner parties, you know? Um, they throw – think here of fucking um, – oh, God, I just forgot – Gatsby, right? Throwing some fucking massive, massive amounts of parties to display his wealth. Uh, fancy dresses, expensive china – uh, balls that they throw, um, huge fancy weddings with p- pristine white dresses and white cake and sugar and all the things that the lower classes could not afford. They're doing all of these things. They're going golfing. They're having holidays. They're starting wars. You know, um, All of these things are taking place in order to basically display their opulent wealth. So, so there's a type of horizontal relation that's taking place here that is based on a type of mimetic rivalry, right? So that billionaire across the street is has all these chinas and is throwing this party well i want what they want and then they want what i want because now i'm going to throw a bigger party and so what you get is this sort of like lateral or horizontal type of rivalry that then creates an asset inflation right more value needs to be created because then the value of having a ball party is part and parcel of being rich and wealthy you know um having a, a private plane is part and parcel of being wealthy and then the next person is like oh you got a plane i got a fucking rocket ship that spacex designed for me and then the next person's like oh you got a rocket ship i've got a whole <laughs> fleet of rocket ships oh i've got a colony on mars whatever right so there's this horizontal and lateral competition that's taking place that exponentially increases the value of the wealth in relation to um, or contra to the poor the poor are either getting poorer or they can only incrementally increase their well-being so there's an exponential increase in inequality that's taking place here too. So this is something that I think can help us kind of understand what's going on here. There does seem to be this type of horizontal, lateral um, form of asset speculation that's also taking place here because of these kind of brands that are being exchanged that this rich person says is valuable and then this other rich person over here says is valuable. And then so there's this article that I just shared on Twitter that I think helps us understand a little bit of the logic here. Um, by I think a wonderful, wonderful scholar named Amin Saman who um, wrote about the eternal return in Nietzsche in relation to the asset economy. The title of the article is Eternal Return on Capital, Nihilistic Repetition in the Asset Economy. And I'm just going to read a little bit from the abstract. He says, I argue that the reordering of class around the axis of asset ownership has produced two seemingly distinct structures of feeling. And I think that's important. Two structures of feeling. One structure of feeling is based on the thrill of endless turnover and return on capital. The other on the drudgery of recurring payment schedules and debt rollovers. Then he says, (laughs) though on the surface at odds with each other, both are anchored in a deeper libidinal economy associated with the asset form and ultimately nihilistic in character. The asset economy should therefore be seen as producing a very peculiar form of eternity based on the abolition of time through repetition. And I think that's right. I think that helps us understand what's going on here. There are these two classes, one that is driven by this emotional thrill of being able to invest in these types of assets, and the other that it can only ever aspire to that, that is pulled forth kind of by the illusion that you can just buy an NFT and you can become a part of this, but they're trapped in the drudgery of their debt payments and of uh, servicing 
paying their rent and just trying to be able to get like a mortgage so that they can feel like they're a part of the asset class. And it's the difference between those two structures of feeling that I think is really kind of something that can also help us understand the logic of NFTs. That's super interesting. I have so many thoughts and I don't want to go too far because um, this will be a yeah. different subject. But you know, part of me is thinking, so one, one clear objection you might have is that, look, uh, given this idea of conspicuous consumption, uh, I'm not sure how to think about the structures of feeling it, but maybe you can incorporate it into my thought after I express it. Um, conspicuous consumption is a sort of symptom, especially given the Gilded Age context, right, of people not having anything productive to do with their wealth. And so using these exp- expressions of opulence, right, to sort of not just impress, but gain social recognition of some kind or another, probably not even a coherent one in mind. Um, and there's something really important about that because you might look at that and just be like, everything about that is completely disgusting and wrong. And I wish a nuclear bomb would be dropped on those parties, right? And I, and I sympathize with with that, you know, response, right? But there's like the, the Hegelian devils on my shoulder, or maybe the angel at this point, this context, saying something like, well, look at look at the underlying social um, behavior going on here. And that individuals looking for recognition is a good thing, right? It's something all individuals in a society do is they engage in projects and then they look to others to sort of reaffirm and recognize their projects as worthy. And in fact, it probably works the other way around where you see other people recognizing other people's projects as worthy and then it becomes worthy in your eyes slowly but surely, right? And then that this dialectical process between individuals as they develop gaining this um, sense of um, self-respect from the valuation or from the recognition of others that enhances their valuation of whatever project, so on and so forth. And that, that process can happen in a healthy way. It just almost never does because social pathology is so rampant, right? And so ubiquitous. And this is just like the nth degree, not quite the nth degree, but like slightly less less than the nth degree of the pathology version of that, where people are so alienated from everything in their society that they look to grand displays of opulence as if that's the kind of thing that could develop a healthy um, recognition from others and to others, right? Someone noticing mm-hmm. that you have 17 cars is going to give you the recognition about what you desire and what you um, what your ends are in life. That's going to in any way enhance your self-respect. No, actually, it's going to make you feel more like shit, and that's why you go and do heroin at night. Um, so I'm thinking like all these thoughts about how, you know, the, the proponents of NFTs might be able to have some sort of social theory, which could eventually help express a kind of healthier version of this. And that given the vast amounts of inequality, social, economic, and otherwise in our society, that's just not going to happen because it's going to be used for these same kinds of conspicuous consumption. But that's contingent. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. That's a contingent effect that says more about our society than it says about NFTs. This is central to the whole debate around cryptocurrencies, right? The one side sees this as a future for liberation, freedom on the internet, etc., etc. The other side says, no, it's just rife for economic speculation and for bubbles. And I think that actually both sides have a little bit of truth to them, you know? Um, 
Even somebody like Gary Vee, who is a hardcore NFT supporter, he recognizes that there's probably a bubble over the next handful of years right now in NFTs and that it's going to crash just like the internet did in 2000, uh, the internet markets did in 2000, and, um, and then it's going to come back and it's going to be a lasting new asset resource, right? So, yeah, I mean, I think that kind of goes to the, the whole central debate about blockchain technologies and cryptocurrencies more broadly. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't really have any sort of final thoughts on this except to say I, I definitely agree with um, Simon's article about and I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. I've met him and I've only met him as Amin. Is it Samen, maybe? Salmon? Samen? Salmon? Saman? Um but uh I hope I'm saying it. S-A-M-M-A-N. But um I I think what, what interests me most and what worries me most is those structures of feeling, the libidinal economy that's taking place here. And I think it's this relates to a lot of my concerns about seriality and um the manufacture of desire, that it seems to me that NFTs are another way to intensify the rate of our libidinal investment. Not just our libidinal investment, but the rate, the intensity of our little in, um, our libidinal investment. And this is why I a little bit balk when you were talking about history before. Because history, and I know you don't mean it this way, but history tends to mean chronological history. And I'm more interested in a non, at least a non-minute, seconds, minutes, days, months, years, millennia type of history and more about something that kind of gets down deepwards into different dimensions of intensity um dimensional overlap pluridimensional overlap things like that and so for me what i worry about is that this technology because i don't think our emotions function simply according to what's called extensional quantified time you know, unit, 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 unit. You know, we can talk about Marcus Gabriel, the unit, right? That's kind of an ontotheological way of thinking about the world here. I tend to think of things more in terms of like plurality of dimension and intensity. Uh, I don't want to say qualitative because I kind of reserve the idea of like qualitative multiplicity for something that is maybe even beyond this. There's some sort of transfer into a type of quantification, but it's a different form of quantification. It's one that I don't think is easily parceled into how we typically think of history. But nevertheless, it still is a rate. It's still a speed, if you will. There's still a velocity to it. You know, there's still some measure to it, but it's taking place according to a different type of logic. And what worries me is that that is endlessly quantifiable. It's endlessly enclosable. Or we could say um, it's endlessly expropriable. And I think that's what really defines the logic of a lot of these new forms of asset that are being created that are then intensifying the regimes of wealth or the, the sources of wealth for the leisure class or the asset class. And I think that's what NFTs really allow for, is they are another form of this type of intensification 
of our attention and of our desire that is being translated into value for the wealthy, the already wealthy. Hmm. I don't, I don't want to go down this road because this is a whole different idea, but I read the entirety of Difference of Repetition. I still don't understand what intensity means, but <laughs> <laughs> that's a different question. Uh, yeah, yeah, we, can, yeah, yeah. we can probably leave it at there, leave it at that, because I think we've we've exhausted what we can say about NFTs for right now without getting into uh, much more abstract issues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's essentially what NFTs are, you know, and a lot of people are hot on them. A lot of people are investing in them. New people. I mean, it's like a, a, a hundreds and hundreds of million dollars market around the world globally. And it's going to be interesting to see what they turn into in the future. Is it just going to be another asset that people use to diversify their portfolio like real estate or like uh, other forms of intellectual property, licenses and patents, um, things like that? I, I do think that there's a sense in which at least this type of technology is here to stay and it's going to line a lot of people's pockets, you know? And at the same time, I think then it's also really important for us to start thinking about the social and political implications of these types of assets. And I don't think that a lot of people on the left are paying enough attention to it in a way that I think is constructive and productive because it's oftentimes just kind of hand-waved away as being fictitious capital or that's just people gambling or something like that. And I think there's something much more culturally and socially and politically substantial going on here. I think there is something quote-unquote real about these types of asset, um, asset, asset uh, entities. And so I think um, there's some great research out there that we should explore, and I think that we should kind of be open to that and really kind of listen to the voices within the space that are advocates of it, not so that we simply buy what they're saying, but so that we can kind of see that, okay, maybe there is something more that we can learn about what these things are without just simply kind of disregarding them as being just some kind of Ponzi scheme for the rich. Yeah, I think the the ending point would just be to say that the conception that this is all just fictitious capital is naive, um, and so. so is and so is the uh, super optimistic notion that we've transformed the experience <laughs> of art through NFTs, like uh, Winklevoss yeah. was saying. So those are both uh, naive analyses that we should reject. Agreed, agreed, my friend. All right, let's go ahead and wrap that up. That's what NFTs are. That's kind of some critical stuff on how to think about NFTs. Now we're going to get into the sticky leaves portion of the episode. Holla. All right, so sticky leaves. This is the segment of the episode where one of us talks about whatever is bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So Austin, what's doing it for you this week? Yeah, so I'm super stoked to kind of like launch my YouTube channel. And um, as I said at the outlet of the show, um, it's uh, it's going to be a consistent thing moving forward. I'm going to be doing a couple videos a week, and I'll, ultimately, I'd, I'd love to be you know just kind of a full time content creator. That's the plan. So um, that's 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 really what what the issue is. I mean, I guess in one sense, as an academic, you're a content creator anyway, right? Uh, it's just that you are, are employed by a university to create course lectures and write books and speak at conferences and publish articles and things like that. 
Um, so I'm just transitioning now to kind of the new media, so to speak. And so uh, that's that's the plan is to really kind of build these platforms out. And it's perfect for me because I have this sort of skill set that is on the one side, let's say my academic philosophical, the professional philosophical side. And then on the other side, I have my artistic interests as an actor, as a writer, as a producer. But also what people don't know is that I used to be an editor. And so I worked for a production company for a little bit in L.A. doing documentary work, and then it kind of turned into brand content stuff and viral videos and things like that. But um, so I have some editing skills. So uh, this 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 new media platform is fantastic because I'm able to kind of explore all of those different things and kind of bring them together in a synthesis, right? And so as I made this um, the, the first YouTube video that I launched, I'm working on my second one now. It, one of the things that I really enjoyed was the artistry of editing. And we've talked a little bit about this before with our episode on metamodernism. We talked about it, I think, uh, with our episode on the documentary, Inventing the Future, about kind of like using cuts and overlaying images and like mixing and, and mashing things up. And one of the things that's so interesting about it is I think that you can really create a wonderful juxtaposition of sounds and visual images to create, I think, a lovely art piece. So, for example, in my YouTube video, um, I'm talking about like the logic of the obsessive. Um, and, you know, I've talked about it a lot on this podcast. If you're not familiar, check out the video um, and or you just give it a quick Google, the logic of the hysteric versus the logic of the obsessive in like Zizek, for example. But... I talk about this, and I'm talking about it in the context of Jordan Peterson, um, basically saying that he's kind of characterized by what I see as the logic of the obsessive. And also at the same time, um, one of the things he does is he kind of like reduces things and essentializes by kind of just saying, well, things are just the way they are, right? Like there's this video clip that I'm using in my next video where he says, you know, just high heels just simply are there to accentuate sexual attraction. And you put on lipstick, women put on lipstick simply because um, it is uh, a sign of sexual arousal. And so we're mimicking that, right? So he's very reductive and kind of like reducing and essentializing certain things down to these sort of base categories or base designations. And one of the things that's interesting is so as he's talking, uh, I have like, I'm talking about Jordan Peterson. Then I have like... Um, it, it, uh, a cutaway, a quick cutaway to Travis Kelsey, uh, who's an NFL player, saying it is what it is, right? Because that saying, it is what it is, is basically kind of like the same sort of like, hey, things are just the way they are, right? And it's this like silly phrase that everybody just says all the time. But it's actually, there's something really profound philosophically about that phrase being so common is because it actually is a sort of like, because it's in common parlance, we don't really think, oh, what does it actually mean? But essentially, it's kind of just saying, hey, things are the way they are, whereas the philosophical mood would want to say, wait a second, no, things aren't just the way they are. Like, let's unpack <laughs> things a little bit here, right? So there's this funny thing where I'm critiquing Peterson for his obsessive logic. Then I can cut in a quote of a football player saying, it is what it is, and then I can kind of continue talking and use graphics on the screen. Then a minute later, I can say, you know, the problem with this is things just simply are the way they are. And then my mood and my tone and my emotion can be a little bit more serious. And then I can cut to George Bush, who says, hey, I'm sorry things came to this, but it is what it is, which he said at one point at a summit when he was with uh, President Abe talking about a bill that he was going to shoot down uh, that would withdraw the troops from 
uh, Iraq. And he immediately, he was like, I'm going to veto this fucking bill, so don't even put it on my table. And then they put it on, the, the Congress put it on the table, and he vetoed it. And he's like, look, I, I'm sorry it came to this, but it is what it is, right? And so then you have a more serious implication just from this little flash of an image. And talking about history again, the entire history of the Bush presidency, of um, the Iraq war, of Abu Ghraib, of all of these things are kind of there um, condensed into that little smash of an, uh, of an image that pops up. Now, of course, you might not think all of those things consciously, but at the level of, like, emotional unconscious, these things are pulling us and seducing us in this image. And, of course, some people are going to tap into those flows and other people aren't as much. And other people are even going to uh, latch onto other sort of flows that might be there in the sort of structural unconscious. But it's so amazing to me to play with that artistry. And even if my intention of using those images has certain points of kind of like political or social cross-resonance that I'm trying to articulate, it doesn't necessarily have to kind of come across that way to the audience just as so, just insofar as it does something and elicits some type of kind of connection that I hope consciously or unconsciously, emotionally, reflectively stimulates them to thought or passions in some sort of uh, way that I think would build towards better communities. So that's what I think is actually so interesting about like the artistry of editing on YouTube channels and um, just of editing in general, of using kind of cross-pollination through like the logic of the cut. But I'm having a great time with it and I hope that I can continue the kind of pace of my output because um, I do love this type of, of artistry, this type of work and, uh, and hope I can keep doing sick stuff. So yeah. Yeah, I'll just second the fact that um... – the the idea of the cut as not as being part of the content of the work right and having meaning in and of itself i think is really interesting not something i thought a lot about yeah. until we talked about it a few uh a while ago on the podcast um and also i just want to reiterate that the the video is extremely well done i knew austin that you had editing skills and obviously you've done editing for the podcast with audio but video is a whole nother deal and i was aware that you had a background but i was not aware that you were as good at it as you obviously are because I mm. did not think you did it when I watched the video. because <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think I've seen you do that level of video editing, or at least I wasn't, I don't, I didn't remember it. So I was very impressed and uh, I'm excited about what you're going to be able to do with that kind of stuff, because I imagine the more you do it, you're going to even get better um, mm. at it. So that's going to be really fun to watch. And I also want to echo that, you know, you talk about the the importance of the notion, you're talking about the philosophical content here, of uh, it is what it is. You know, when I, te when I teach philosophy of religion, um, when we talk about the problem of evil, I show my students a couple episodes of All in the Family, you know, the Archie Bunker series from the 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's an episode where um, one of their friends is, is brutally murdered. And so um, Edith, Archie Bunker's wife, uh, who's you know like notoriously gregarious and never ever sad about anything um in contrast to archie who's always a grump right um gets really down in the dumps and never wants to you know doesn't want to go to church doesn't want to do anything starts questioning god and stuff and so you get this problem of evil kind of theodicy start uh, concepts being developed here and at, at a certain point archie's fed up with her not being herself anymore like not making dinner not doing the things that he expects her to do as a, as a dutiful wife and so he sits her down and basically says, look, what is, is, and what was, was, and what's going to mm -hmm. be, is going to be. And <laughs> I ask, I always ask the students after they watch that, that's 
funny and it's played for for you know comedy's sake in the episode but he's expressing a philosophy there right mm. as a specific theodicy and so that's very much in line mm. with your your thoughts about um it is what it is right it, it it sounds cliche and like it's meaningless but no it's actually especially when you look at the um illocutionary sort of uh meaning of that speech act in the moment it's doing something in the context in which it's uttered that's really philosophically meaningful and so that needs to be explored especially the bush example that you gave it's very yes. much doing work uh, it's not just like moving the conversation to a new point exactly and then there's a trump example in the video that i use as well where he's talking about coronavirus and all these people have died and he's like it is what it is and it's just so cavalier that we can use that phrase, and I love that you said it's theodicy because this is one of the things that I've thought about a lot lately. Um, Joseph Vogel has written about what he calls oikodicy. It's V-O-G-L. And oikodicy is his idea of the sort of theodical – theodical? Is that how you would say it? Um, is that the sure. adjective version? <laughs> the the theodical um, uh, uh, elements of uh, capitalism, right? That it has an oikodicy. And I think that this it is what it is is – a type of what would we call it? Is it a type of ethical, um, like a part of the, the the ethic of capitalism? But I do think that this it is what it is is part of capitalism. That capitalism just is simply the um, expression of what is real about human nature. It is the, the the way of the system. We have to work within the system. People always say you can't fight against it. It is what it is is something we often say, which is essentially making a type of a theodicy argument and i think that's extremely important for us to explore you know yeah it's 100 percent um a theodicy because it's taking a contingent outcome which people will oftentimes have intuitive um a sort of rejection of right like oh this is uh, unfair or wrong or whatever and it's sort of covering over that that job's complaint and saying no this is the only way it could be it's not actually contingent you just have to deal with the fact that this is the best that can that we can get so it's very much a theodicy in that way, yeah. Yeah, and this is precisely one of Marx's critiques of religion, right? Um, which is where the idea of theodicy comes from, is that it justifies an unjust world, right? It says that, oh, that's just the way things are. It's part of God's plan. Don't worry. Things will all work out in the end. We're on the path of progress, whatever, whatever, whatever. So I think the secular version of that under capitalism is, well, it just is the way it is. We have to work within the system. It's doing its thing. Don't worry. Trust, 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 trust. All will work out fine, right? And of, and and of course, with neoliberalism, yeah. we don't even get the redemption in the end though, right? It's not even don't worry. It will work out in the end. This is just a blip on the radar. It's no, you're at fault for being on the lower end of these outcomes, right? And you deserve what you get. Not even like some possible future redemption, or at least that notion of it's kind of occluded in favor of pure blame. Mm, interesting. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Damn. <laughs> we got a lot more to say about that, I think. That's a basically what I think. Um, we haven't read it yet, but we want to read for our book club. Adam Kotzko's Neoliberalism's Demons. And I think it's around that, those sorts of ideas. So we're going to have to do that ah. for our book club in the future. Well, foreshadowing, Adam Kotzko will hopefully be a guest of ours in early May. That's what we are hopefully planning once his semester is, is wrapped up and he has some time. So that would be cool. We could talk with him about that maybe. Um, okay, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you so much for listening as always. Make sure to tell your friends about this podcast. Um, 
subscribe to us at all the places if you're not subscribed. And you can hit us up on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Also on Insta, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at podcast at gmail.com. I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything else that we got to say, dude. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Vadami Americanski. Yeah.